Greetings, listener, and welcome to a bonus episode of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the sleep podcast where I lull you to a state of unconsciousness with the deeply dull drone of my voice. Because the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics are underway, I thought it would be enjoyable for both of us if I were to spend a bit of time rambling about my all-time favorite Olympic sport, curling. We will begin this journey with a roundup of things I know about curling, where I will do my best to remember all of the details, and then I will check my knowledge with a particular ponder of Wikipedia's article on curling, where we will learn even more about this thrilling sport. Before we begin, I would like to recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice, or YouTube. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RyanRamblesPod, or follow me at Anvil1 on Twitter. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. I have been a fan of curling now for over a decade since the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. In that year, my partner and I bonded over the sport, which we discovered an interest in together, one weekend afternoon at a local sports pub. Later that winter, we went to the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club in Oakland and took lessons. For those who live in the Bay Area, I will have a link in the description. In this roundup, I will try to list as many things as I know about curling. The first thing that I think I can speak to is the court itself and the scoring. The curling sheet, as it's called, is about 150 feet long. It's actually quite a lot longer in person than it looks like when you're watching it on TV. When you see that overhead view of the rocks coming down the sheet and the, and the players sweeping, it, it looks a lot smaller. Like It seems like it's a small court, but when you're actually on the ground, it's pretty far. For some perspective with the American audience, one way to think about it is that 150 feet is about half of a football field. That's also more than the entire length of a basketball court, or the distance from third base to home plate. So the court is called a sheet. It has a circular scoring area at both ends. In any given round of play, though, you only use one of those ends of the sheet. You don't go back and forth. Now, the main focus of the scoring is the series of concentric circles at each end of the curling sheet. The very center of the circle, which during the Olympic Games has the Olympic logo on it, is called the button. And the button is the 
very center and then outside of the button is the forefoot ring and then there are two more rings outside of that. Now each ring doesn't have any particular scoring significance, they're just points of reference for figuring out scoring and for the players to be able to talk about their strategy during the match. The sum of all of those rings is called the house. So you want to get as many of your curling stones inside of the house as possible, and you want more of yours close to the center than your opponents. At the end of a round of play, one team, only one team, is awarded points for the number of stones that they have closest to the center of the button before any of the other team's stones would count. So, for example, a team could have more of its curling stones in the house. Like, they could have five stones in the house, but if the opposing team has just one stone closer to the button, to the center, then they don't score any of those rocks, and the team with the one rock in the middle gets the point. And that's more or less how it plays out. Over a certain number of ends, a round is called an end, in mixed doubles, which began the Olympics for 2022, the teams play eight ends, and in a standard curling match with four players on each team, they play ten ends. The team that scores the most after that many ends is the winner. Those are sort of the essential pieces of information about the court, or the curling sheet, and the scoring area and how points are scored. There are a few other things to know about, though, with the curling sheet. The first is that the uh, foothold sort of thing that the curler will push off of to throw the stone is called the hack, and that is what you'll hear the commentator talk about when the player is in the hack. They are preparing to throw the stone. And then there is a line about a third of the way down the sheet that's called the hog line. And the hog line is the last point on the sheet for the curler that is traveling to release the stone. They're not allowed to keep touching the stone after the hog line. Another important thing to know about the sheet itself is that the ice is not smooth like it is in hockey or any of the skating tournaments. The curling sheet, the ice is pebbled, which means that it's got distributed droplets of water that have frozen so that the surface is actually a little bit bumpy. And that has a reason for physics to be that way because of the nature of how curling works. And having that pebbled surface 
makes it possible for the heavy stone to travel down the ice. We'll get more into the physical details of why that works as we talk more about the sport. And I would say that those are probably the most essential things to know about in terms of the sheet and the scoring. But I'm sure that when we get to the Wikipedia article, we may come across a few items that I left out there. Now, the next most important thing to know about is definitely got to be the curling stones themselves. As in any sport, the object used for scoring is pretty much central and essential to the understanding of the sport itself. I cannot think off the top of my head of any sports where the object for scoring is unimportant, but if you can think of a sport where the scoring object is unimportant, I would like to know what it is. So a curling stone, sometimes referred to as a rock, is a polished piece of granite that has been uh, milled to specifications. Specifically, it's a 42-pound granite rock with a concave bottom and a sort of handle on top. The modern ones that you see in the Olympics have uh, some electronics built into them as well to indicate whether uh, a foul was committed at the hog line. Now the 42-pound granite rock is a specific granite um, as the sport does hail from Scotland. The granite is from a specific quarry or I think maybe a series of specific quarries but in any case the the granite used for curling stones is um, a very specific regional stone. So no matter where in the world a curling tournament is taking place, the stones that you see in the game are all from the same place. So as I already mentioned, the stones themselves have a concave bottom. And the reason for this is that it minimizes the amount of contact between the stone itself and the surface of the ice. Because the outside of the stone is convex and round on the sides, then a very small amount of the stone itself is touching. And that means that similar to ice skating, the smallest amount of mass is in contact with the ice. And that's even more so true because of the pebbling. And a sort of fringe additional reason for the pebbling is also that, if you think of how a suction cup works, that a concave 42-pound rock on a smooth icy surface 
would actually create drag from the suction of having the concave bottom. Now the next most obvious and important thing to bring up when talking about curling are the brooms. Everybody recognizes curling for the frantic sweeping that the players do ahead of the stone after it is thrown. It's kind of the funniest part of the game because it looks so silly with a very big rock and very little brooms. It, it looks funny. It's like they're, you know, brushing the ice with a toothbrush or something. So the sweeping devices are in fact called brooms, and what they are doing is sweeping the ice. But the principal goal is not to remove debris from in front of the rock. The goal is to actually melt the ice in front of it to speed up the pace at which the stone is going down the sheet. And this is in part to get velocity, but in addition it's to inhibit the path of the stone as it curls. So another thing that goes with the sweeping that I think a lot of people remember or think about from the times they've watched curling is that while all of that frantic sweeping is taking place, there's usually a lot of vocal communication between the players. And usually what that is, is the person who's watching the path of the stone is giving sweeping instructions to the people who are sweeping as the stone travels down. And so that person is trying to help them determine what amount of sweeping they should be doing in order to get the stone into the place that they want it to land. And there are a lot of different um, commands. Different teams use different language to explain it. Um, but if you were to take a curling class, you'd learn that basically it's expressions of how heavily you should be sweeping or vigorously um, to influence the, the path of the stone. Whenever people say that they think that curling is too slow-paced, I always think about these moments where the rock is flying across this sheet of ice and people are frantically sweeping and yelling at each other and think it, that doesn't feel very slow-paced to me. I understand what people mean, but if you get into watching curling, it's, it doesn't feel as slow-paced as it looks most of the time. The next thing that's probably worth bringing up that I don't think I've mentioned so far is curling itself. The game is called curling, and what is that? It's pretty much what it sounds like. What the object is to do 
is send the rock down the sheet and put a bit of a spin on it so that it curves or curls into the position that the players want it to land so that it starts off looking pretty straight most of the time and as the um, other players on the team are sweeping in front of the stone and allowing it to travel more straight the rock's momentum and spin is trying to carry it in an axis more perpendicular to the path of the velocity here I'm you know using my you know probably 25 year old memories of what physics terminology is but I think you get the basic idea that if a player sent the stone down the sheet it would start to travel left or right depending and when they sweep in front of it it means that the ending point of that arc gets further and further down the sheet so for example if it was untouched the stone might come to a halt in the middle of the house but at the top of the ring but with some sweeping to help it travel faster down the ice they might be able to curve that to still end at the center of the sheet but further down the sheet and closer to the button which is the middle of the house but at the very basic side of it the term curling isn't mystical or strange or hard to figure out it's just what they do with the stone although what is kind of interesting is that it is a verb and the sport is named after the thing that you do and I wonder how many sports relatively speaking are named after the verb the action that is performed or something that happens in the game versus how many sports are named after the object in the game like the baseball or the basketball or sports that have a name that altogether is just what it's called and isn't named after an object or a verb. The last thing that I can think of in this roundup of things I know about curling is the uniform and shoes in particular. Now the shoes are unique in that curlers don't have skates but they what they do have is one shoe that has a Teflon bottom so that they can slide on the ice and that Teflon bottom basically serves two purposes the first and primary purpose is that it allows them to launch from the hack to throw the stone when it is their turn to throw the stone and then when you are watching an Olympic curling match the sweepers are usually flying down the sheet with 
they're leading with their Teflon shoe and pushing with the other shoe. And the other shoe is more or less a normal shoe. Now, the reason I say that maybe the primary purpose is to launch from the hack is because if you go and learn how to curl, you don't start off with your own pair of curling shoes. And instead you'll have a, like, just a Teflon sole that you use your regular shoes with. And when you're sweeping the stone as you go down the sheet, you don't do the Teflon thing. You just go with your shoes. You should be wearing shoes that have a decent tread because you don't want to slip on the on the pebbled ice. But as an amateur learning how to curl, you definitely don't start off with any kind of uh, innate ability to fly down the sheet and sweep at the same time. You'll fall over more often than not if you try to go too fast. Now if you're learning how to curl also, usually you don't start off learning how to use the broom as a balance when you're launching from the hack. When you watch Olympic curling, you see that the person who is about to throw the stone has in their offhand a curling broom that they are putting part of their weight on. And when you go to get lessons, there's a special piece of equipment that you lean on uh, to throw the stone, because you're just not there. You're not at that level yet. Now there is something of a uniform thing, at least for this 2022 Beijing Olympics. And that is that the teams have two uniforms, a dark and a light-colored uniform. And in this case, they are supposed to wear their dark uniform when they're throwing the dark-colored stones, which would be the red ones, and their light-colored uniform when they're throwing the lighter ones. I'm not certain whether this practice came before, but I also remember that a few Olympics ago they were allowed to wear any kind of pants they wanted, and the pants got a little bit out of control, and you can Google that. And I think for last Olympics, for 2018, they clamped down on the freedom to choose the pants they were wearing, so that maybe this iteration of the uniform rules was for that. I'm not totally positive. Well, that is just about everything I can think of that I know about curling without doing any additional research or having the benefit of the internet at my fingertips while I ramble. The essence of a good roundup. Coming up, we'll have a look at the Wikipedia article on curling and see if I got anything wrong or right. I mentioned that I got into curling through watching the game on TV with my partner and through taking lessons. 
What's your favorite Olympic sport, and how did you get into it? Now that we have established everything I think I know about the subject, I would like to ponder particularly the Wikipedia article on the fine Winter Olympic sport of curling. Herein, I expect both of us will learn quite a lot more about this cold-weather-themed sport. I shall try to be somewhat judicious about how much of the article I cover, but hope to balance this judiciousness with an adequately slow and boring pace of presentation. Now then, let's turn to curling on wikipedia.org. Curling, from Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. This article is about the sport, not to be confused with hurling. Now before you laugh, people of my generation think of hurling as one thing, but hurling is in fact another sport. It is, in fact, an Irish sport of Gaelic origin and is an outdoor sport, which I am not going to spend time on. Suffice it to say that hurling may not be what you thought it was when I first said hurling. Now then. Curling is a sport in which players slide stones on a sheet of ice toward a target area which is segmented into four concentric circles. It is related to bowls, pools, and shuffleboard. Two teams, each with four players, take turns sliding heavy, polished granite rocks, also called stones, across the ice curling sheet toward the house, a circular target marked on the ice. Each team has eight stones, with each player throwing two. The purpose is to accumulate the highest score for a game. Points are scored for the stones resting closest to the center of the house at the conclusion of each end, which is completed when both teams have thrown all of their stones once. A game usually consists of eight or ten ends. The player can induce a curved path, described as a curl, by causing the stone to slowly rotate as it slides. The path of the rock may be further influenced by two sweepers with brooms or brushes to accompany it as it slides down the sheet and sweep the ice in front of the stone. Quote, sweeping a rock decreases the friction which makes the stone travel a straighter path with less curl and a longer distance. A great deal of strategy and teamwork go into choosing the ideal path and placement of a stone for each situation. 
and the skills of the curlers determine the degree to which the stone will achieve the desired result. Well, that was a pretty good description of the essence of curling, and probably a bit more efficient than the one I gave earlier in this episode. Now, that was the introduction, and we shall next look at the history of curling. Evidence that curling existed in Scotland in the early 16th century includes a curling stone inscribed with the date 1511, found along with another bearing the date 1551, when an old pond was drained at Tumblane, Scotland. The world's oldest curling stone and the world's oldest football are now kept in the same museum. The Stirling Smith Art Gallery and Museum in Stirling. The first written reference to a contest using stones on ice, coming from the records of Paisley Abbey, Renfrewshire, in February 1541. Two paintings, Winter Landscape with a Bird Trap, and The Hunters in the Snow, both dated 1565, by Peter Bruegel the Elder, depict Flemish peasants curling, albeit without brooms. Scotland and the Low Countries had strong trading and cultural links during this period, which is also evident in the history of golf. So curling really does go back a long way. I mean, if it's truly as old as the early 16th century, then it's pretty astounding that it's been around for these 500 years, or a little bit more than 500 years, 510 or 12 at this point of recording. Now I can have a little look at these paintings. The Winter Landscape with a Bird Trap by Bruegel in 1565. Well, there are definitely people on ice in a winter setting with little circular objects on the ice. And in this case, they have a straight upward uh, type of stick, like a top wood, instead of the curved handle that we see today. I suppose this could be an image of curling, but it's not completely obvious. As the description said, there isn't sweeping and it's it's definitely hard to tell how they're scoring or totally whether the two groups that are playing are truly playing but it it does seem like a fair interpretation that they are curling however i would add that and perhaps it's just for drama there is a circular hole in the ice and it is perilously close to where the curling is happening, which seems like this is a very dangerous game of curling going on. The word curling first appears in print in 1620 
in Perth, Scotland, in the preface and the verses of a poem by Henry Adamson. The sport was, and still is, in Scotland and Scottish settled regions, like southern New Zealand, also known as, quote, the roaring game, because of the sound the stones make while traveling over the pebble, droplets of water applied to the playing surface. The verbal noun curling is formed from the Scots and English verb curl, which describes the motion of the stone. Now that's interesting, the roaring game. Named after the sound the stones make while traveling over the pebble. It is actually very true that there is a very unique sound. It sounds a little bit like a big stone door opening in a fantasy movie. Like a vault. If you are not watching the game in a noisy environment like at a pub or maybe an airport where the sound would be off. If, you, if you're watching it at home and especially if you have headphones, make sure to turn it up and listen to that sound, because it's actually very cool. Kilsith Curling Club claims to be the first club in the world, having been formally constituted in 1716. So that would suggest that were it created 200 years earlier that it took 200 years for a club to form around it. It is still in existence today. So, even if it isn't the first in the world, it's easy for it to lay claim to being the oldest. Kilsith also claims the oldest purpose-built curling pond in the world at Colcium, in the form of a low dam creating a shallow pool some 100 by 250 meters, that's 330 by 820 feet, in size. The International Olympic Committee recognizes the Royal Caledonian Curling Club, founded as the Grand Caledonian Curling Club in 1838, as developing the first official rules for the sport. So even though curling may be as old as 500 years, its establishment appears to be more modern than that. In the early history of curling, the playing stones were simply flat-bottomed stones from rivers or fields, which lacked a handle and were of inconsistent size, shape, and smoothness. Some early stones had holes for a finger and the thumb, akin to ten-pin bowling balls. Unlike today, the thrower had little control over the curl, or velocity, and relied more on luck than on precision, skill, and strategy. The sport was often played on frozen rivers, although purpose-built ponds were later created in many Scottish towns. For example, the Scottish poet David Gray describes whiskey-drinking curlers on the luggy water at Kirkintilloch. Now, thus far, there are more accompanying images. There is the 
curling match at Angleton Castle from 1860. There is a photograph of a group of people curling on a lake in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada in 1897. And that image is truly interesting because you see what may be several hundred people uh, m making up the border of the curling sheet because they're on a lake and in the middle are all of the people curling and what is probably worth mentioning is that as this is 1897 and an older time period folks appear to be rather well dressed up for being on the ice and out in the cold and then there is another photo of men curling in Toronto, Ontario, and Canada in 1909. And uh, these are also well-dressed men with hats and ties. But their curling stones actually look quite a lot like our modern ones do now. However, their brooms are classic brooms that uh, are not yet like the ones that are used today in the sport. Outdoor curling was very popular in Scotland between the 16th and 19th centuries because the climate provided good ice conditions every winter. Scotland is home to the International Governing Body for Curling, the World Curling Federation, in Perth, which originated as a committee of the Royal Caledonian Curling Club, the mother club of curling. In the 19th century, several private railway stations in the United Kingdom were built to serve curlers attending Bonspiels, which are um, curling tournaments, such as those at Aboyne, Carsbreck, and Drumere. Today, the sport is most firmly established in Canada, having been taken there by Scottish emigrants. The Royal Montreal Curling Club, the oldest established sports club still active in North America, was established in 1807. The first curling club in the United States was established in 1830, and the sport was introduced to Switzerland and Sweden before the end of the 19th century also by Scots. Today, curling is played all over Europe and has spread to Brazil, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, China, and Korea. So curling has now spread throughout the world, and uh, I guess you could say it's had some growing popularity. We learned that when we went to try out curling, um, at a curling club that, of course, every four years it becomes more popular and people become more curious because they see it during the Olympic Games on TV. And speaking of Olympic curling, here are the details. Curling has been a medal sport in the Winter Olympic Games since the 1998 Winter Olympics. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that Olympic curling has only been a thing for 
a little over 20 years. It currently includes men's, women's, and mixed doubles tournaments. The mixed doubles event was held for the first time in 2018. So mixed doubles was added to the game for the Olympics 20 years after it first started at the Olympics. It is kind of interesting that for a winter sport that was actually popular in the 1800s in the United States and Europe, that it would take another 160 or so years for that sport to become an Olympic winter sport, when it seems like it's this borderline ancient sport going all the way back to the 1500s if we're to believe what we've read. In February 2002, the International Olympic Committee retroactively decided that the curling competition from the 1924 Winter Olympics, originally called Semaine de Sports d'Hiver, or International Winter Sports Week, would be considered official Olympic events and no longer be considered demonstration events. Thus, the first Olympic medals in curling, which at the same time was played outdoors, were awarded for the 1924 Winter Games, with the gold medal won by Great Britain, unsurprisingly, two silver medals by Sweden, and the bronze by France. A demonstration tournament was also held during the 1932 Winter Olympic Games between four teams from Canada and four teams from the United States, with Canada winning 12 games to four. Okay, so there's a little bit deeper background. And the 1924 Winter Olympics, in fact, were the first Winter Olympics. So, somewhat technically, I guess you could say that curling is an original Winter Olympic sport, even though it took another 70 years for it to become uh, a regular medal sport. Since the sport's official edition in the 1998 Olympics, Canada has dominated the sport with their men's team winning gold in 2006, 2010, and 2014, and silver in 1998 and 2002. The women's team won gold in 1998 and 2014, a silver medal in 2010 and a bronze in 2002 and 2006. The mixed doubles team won gold in 2018. At the time of this recording, the mixed doubles round has not finished up, but it looks like Italy is going to blow the doors off of everyone else. Well, now that we've heard a good history of curling, that I certainly couldn't have provided myself without the help of the good people at wikipedia.org, we can now turn to the specifics of the equipment and how curling is played. 
curling sheet. The playing surface, or curling sheet, is defined by the World Curling Federation rules of curling. It is a rectangular area of ice carefully prepared to be as flat and level as possible. 146 to 150 feet, or 45 to 46 meters, in length by 14 and a half to 16 and a half feet, 4.4 to 5 meters in width. The shorter borders of the sheet are called the backboards because of the elongated shape. Several sheets may be laid out side by side in the same arena, allowing multiple games to be played simultaneously. A target, the house, is centered on the intersection of the center line drawn lengthwise down the center of the sheet and the T-line drawn 16 feet or 4.9 meters from and parallel to the backboard. These lines divide the house into quarters. So again, it's the center line that comes down the entire length of the sheet and then a bisecting line that crosses the sheet right through the center. The house consists of a center circle, the button, and three concentric rings of diameter 4, 8, and 12 feet, formed by painting or laying a colored vinyl sheet under the ice and are usually distinguished by color. A stone must at least touch the outer ring in order to score. Otherwise, the rings are merely a visual aid for aiming and judging which stone is closer to the button. Two hog lines are drawn 37 feet from and parallel to the backboard. The hacks, which give the thrower something to push against when making the throw, are fixed 12 feet behind each button. On indoor rinks, there are usually two fixed hacks, rubber-lined holes, one on each side in the center line, with the inside edge no more than 3 inches 76 millimeters, from the center line and the front edge of the hack line. A single movable hack may also be used. The ice may be natural, but is usually frozen by a refrigeration plant pumping a brine solution through numerous pipes fixed lengthwise at the bottom of a shallow pan of water. Most curling clubs have an ice maker whose main job is to care for the ice. At the major curling championships, ice maintenance is extremely important. Large events, such as national or international championships, are typically held in an arena that presents a challenge to the ice maker, who must constantly monitor and adjust the ice and air temperatures, as well as air humidity levels, to ensure a consistent playing surface. It is common for each sheet of ice to have multiple sensors embedded in order to monitor surface temperature as well as probes set up in the seating area to monitor humidity and in the compressor room to monitor brine supply and return temperatures. The surface of the ice is maintained at a temperature of around 23 degrees Fahrenheit 
or negative 5 degrees Celsius. A key part of the preparation of the playing surface is the spraying of water droplets onto the ice, which form pebble on freezing. The pebbled ice surface resembles an orange peel, and the stone moves on top of the pebbled ice. The pebble, along with the concave bottom of the stone, decreases the friction between the stone and the ice, allowing the stone to travel farther. As the stone moves over the pebble, any rotation of the stone causes it to curl or travel along a curved path. The amount of curl, commonly referred to as the feet of curl, can change during a game as the pebble wears. The ice maker must monitor this and be prepared to scrape and repebble the surface prior to each game. Well, I had never really thought about it before, but it does make sense that it would be a very important job, especially in a major tournament, to have someone whose job is to focus on the quality of the pebbling and the consistency of the ice. From what I understand, members of a curling team do uh, use stopwatches to time the speed of their throws and use their observations to figure out how the ice is behaving. So even if it's not consistent, they are still paying attention to the unique behaviors of the sheet that they are curling on. The curling stone also sometimes called a rock in North America, is made of granite and is specified by the World Curling Federation, which requires a weight between 38 and 44 pounds. That's, that's 17.24 and 19.96 kilograms. A maximum circumference of 36 inches 914 millimeters, and a minimum height of four and a half inches, or 114 millimeters. The only part of the stone in contact with the ice is the running surface, a narrow, flat, annulus, or ring. One quarter to one half inch wide, and about five inches in diameter, the sides of the stone bulge convex down to the ring, with the inside of the ring hollowed concave to clear the ice. This concave bottom was first proposed by J.S. Russell of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, sometime after 1870, and was subsequently adopted by Scottish stone manufacturer Andrew Kay. The granite for the stones comes from two sources, Elsa Craig, an island off the Ayrshire coast of Scotland, and the Trefor Granite Quarry in Wales. Elsa Craig is the traditional source and produces two types of granite, Blue Hone and Elsa Craig Common Green. Blue Hone has very low water absorption, which prevents the action of repeatedly freezing water 
from eroding the stone. Elsa Craig Common Green is a lesser quality granite than Blue Hone. In the past, most curling stones were made from Blue Hone, but the island is now a wildlife reserve and the quarry is restricted by environmental conditions that exclude blasting. So that is also interesting that although we knew that curling rocks came from specific places, what we didn't know was that a specific quality of granite that was available at one of those places is no longer available through the processes that were previously used to extract it. Kays of Scotland has been making curling stones in Mouchline, Ayrshire since 1851 and has the exclusive rights to the Ailsa Craig granite granted by the Marques of Ailsa, whose family has owned the island since 1560. If the beginning of this article is accurate, then that means that the family has owned the island for almost as long as curling has existed. According to the 1881 census, Andrew Kay employed 30 people in his curling stone factory in Mouchline. The last harvest of Elsa Craig granite by Kay's took place in 2013 after a hiatus of 11 years. 2,000 tons were harvested, sufficient to fill anticipated orders through at least 2020. Kays have been involved in providing curling stones for the Winter Olympics since Chamonix in 1924 and has been the exclusive manufacturer of curling stones for the Olympics since the 2006 Winter Olympics. Trefor granite comes from the Ir Eiffel or Trefor granite quarry in the village of Trefor on the north coast of the Lynn Peninsula in Gwynedd, Wales and has produced granite since 1850 and also a host of mispronunciations by yours truly. Trefor granite comes in shades of pink, blue, and gray. The quarry supplies curling stone granite exclusively to the Canada Curling Stone Company, which has been producing stones since 1892 and supplied the stones for the 2002 Winter Olympics. A handle is attached by a bolt running vertically through a hole in the center of the stone. The handle allows the stone to be gripped and rotated upon release. On properly prepared ice, the rotation will bend or curl the path of the stone in the direction in which the front edge of the stone is turning, especially as the stone slows. Handles are colored to identify each team, two popular colors in major tournaments being red and yellow. In competition, an electric handle, known as the Eye of the Hog, may be fitted to detect hog line violations. This electronically detects whether the thrower's hand is in contact with the handle as it passes the hog line, 
and indicates a violation by lights at the base of the handle. The eye of the hog eliminates human error and the need for hog line officials. It is mandatory in high-level national and international competition, but its cost, around US $650 each, currently puts it beyond the reach of most curling clubs. Now we'll move on to the iconic curling broom. Although I should add before we begin that there is a notice on the Wikipedia page that this section needs additional citations for verification. The curling broom, or brush, is used to sweep the ice surface in the path of the stone and is also often used as a balancing aid during delivery of the stone. You'll see this most of the time in a curling match that the broom is used for balance. Um, it says often, and my inclination is to say actually more than often, if not most of the time, but if you watch closely in some matches, it seems as though the person delivering the stone is sometimes balanced more with their uh, non-launching leg than with the broom itself. Prior to the 1950s, most curling brooms were made of corn strands and were similar to household brooms of the day. In 1958, Fern Marchesol of Montreal inverted the corn straw in the center of the broom. This style of corn broom was referred to as the blackjack. So that's interesting. For a sport that began 400 years earlier, uh, it took until 1958 to get an iteration of the broom that we're more familiar with today. And even then, it's still made of corn. Artificial brooms made from man-made fabrics, rather than corn, such as the rink rat, also became common later during this time period. Prior to the late 60s, Scottish curling brushes were used primarily by some of the Scots, as well as by recreational and elderly curlers as a substitute for corn brooms, since the technique was easier to learn. In the late 60s, competitive curlers from Calgary, Alberta, such as John Mayer, Bruce Stewart, and later, the World Junior Championship team skipped by Paul Gausel proved that the curling brush could be just as, or more, effective without all the blisters common to corn broom use. During that time period, there was much debate in competitive curling circles as to which sweeping device was more effective, brush or broom. Eventually, the brush won out, with a majority of curlers making the switch to the less costly 
and more efficient broom. Today, brushes have replaced traditional corn brooms at every level of curling. It is rare now to see a curler using a corn broom on a regular basis. Curling brushes may have fabric, hog hair, or horsehair heads. Modern curling brush handles are usually hollow tubes made of fiberglass or carbon fiber instead of a solid length of wooden dowel. These hollow tube handles are lighter and stronger than wooden handles, allowing faster sweeping and also enabling more downward force to be applied to the broom head with reduced shaft flex. That's interesting. So the hollow, like, plastic tubes that they have now are used because they're lighter weight and easier to handle. Which is kind of interesting, having gone curling, because when you first handle one of these brooms, it, it feels awkwardly light to the touch, and doesn't feel like you can really put your weight on it, or really use it for heavy sweeping work, but apparently this is the way to go. New directional fabric brooms were introduced in 2014. Dubbed the Broomgate Controversy, they were able to better manipulate the path of a curling stone than existing brooms. Players were worried that these brooms would alter the fundamentals of the sport by reducing the level of skill required accusing them of giving players an unfair advantage, and at least 34 elite teams signed a statement pledging not to use them. The new brooms were temporarily banned by the World Curling Federation and Curling Canada for the 2015-2016 season. As a result of the Broomgate controversy, as of 2016, only one standardized brush head is approved by the World Curling Federation for competitive play. Now that's very interesting. You know, we've read so far about a multitude of advancements in curling technology that make the sport either more accessible or make it work better. And then here we have, just a few years ago, in the last 10 years, a revolution to the curling broom that was rejected because it was too good. Very interesting. I wonder, I wonder what that's about. Was there perhaps an outcry against having sensors for the stone crossing the hog line because it didn't require an official there and that's tradition or what about the concave part of the curling stone i wonder if there's more to it than we're really getting out of this article or if it is this just sort of like modern anti-modern sentiment rather than looking for the innovation, wanting to remain traditional to the sport. But that seems just so funny because, in particular, the curling broom changed a lot. As we learned 
just a few moments ago. The artificial brooms are from the last 50 years of a potentially 500-year-old sport. Very interesting. Are there advancements in technology that you can think of that have been shunned from sports? The final detailed section on curling equipment is about the shoes. Curling shoes are similar to ordinary athletic shoes except for special soles. The slider shoe, usually known as a slider, is designed for the sliding foot and the gripper shoe, usually known as a gripper, for the foot that kicks off from the hack. The slider is designed to slide and typically has a Teflon sole. It is worn by the thrower during delivery from the hack and by sweepers or the skip to glide down the ice when sweeping or otherwise traveling down the sheet quickly. Stainless steel and red brick sliders with lateral blocks of PVC on the sole are also available as alternatives to Teflon. Most shoes have a full sole sliding surface, but some shoes have a sliding surface covering only the outline of the shoe and other enhancements with the full sole slider. Some shoes have small disc sliders covering the front and heel portions or only the front portion of the foot, which allow more flexibility in the sliding foot for curlers playing with tuck deliveries. When a player is not throwing, the player's slider shoe can be temporarily rendered not slippery by using a slip-on gripper. During Olympic matches, every once in a while, you'll spot the curlers removing or putting on that uh, gripper bottom for the slider shoe. Ordinarily, athletic shoes may be converted to sliders by using a step-on or slip-on Teflon slider or by applying electrical or gaffer tape directly to the sole or over a piece of cardboard. This arrangement often suits casual or beginning players. I can't really imagine applying gaffer tape to the bottom of a shoe to go curling, but that's interesting. I guess that's the sort of thing you might do if it was an impromptu curling game, if you were just out on the ice. But then, where would you get the very specific stones for curling? It seems strange that you would be in a situation where gaffer tape or electrical tape would make sense to create a slider shoe, but you would have the rest of the curling equipment that you needed. When we've gone and taken curling lessons, we've had the step-on sliders, which you don't strap onto, you just step on and, you know, put your weight on for pushing out of the hack. And then after you've pushed off and thrown the stone, you just step off of it rather than glide down the ice majestically like a true curling player. You're more likely, or at least... I am more likely to just fall over at that point. Moving on. 
The gripper is worn by the thrower on the foot that kicks off from the hack during delivery and is designed to grip the ice. It may have a normal athletic shoe sole or a special layer of rubbery material applied to the sole of a thickness to match the sliding shoe. The toe of the hack foot shoe may also have a rubberized coating on the top surface or a flap that hangs over the toe to reduce wear on the top of the shoe as it drags on the ice behind the thrower. Oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know about that, that there's, a, there's an extra, like, guard of rubber on the toe of, a, of the hack shoe. So that's all the detail here on curling shoes, and there's a photo here on the page where you can see in the white Teflon sole of the curling shoe, and then otherwise they look like regular black shoes with laces. Not sneakers, oddly enough, but if you go curling, you'll probably want to wear sneakers or something with a good uh, tread on them. Now, there's just one small section left for equipment, and it lists bullet points for three additional sort of optional things that you'll, well, not entirely optional, things that you'll see in curling as well. The first one is uh, definitely, in its way, not optional, but curling pants. Obviously, you should wear pants when you go curling if for no other reason than because it's chilly and rude not to wear pants. Curling pants made to be stretchy to accommodate the curling delivery. So sometimes there are people that will wear pants that are specific for curling. And if you look at clips of the Sochi Olympics, I think it was Sochi, um, some of the teams had very bright and vibrant curling pants. Next, a stopwatch to time the stones over a fixed distance to calculate their speed. Stopwatches can be attached either to clothing or the broom. If you, if you watch Olympic curling, for sure you'll be seeing stopwatches in the hands of the curlers. Keep an eye out, because they're usually not super obvious about using them, but they're there. Finally, curling gloves and mittens to keep the hands warm and improve grip on the broom. Well, that's all of the equipment. That seems like a lot, but I imagine many sports have a decent amount of equipment that we don't normally talk about or notice unless we're exploring it this particularly. So this section on gameplay is going to go into the real nitty-gritty of the, you know, what a curling match involves, the actions that players take, and um, I think we might also get some scoring here. The purpose of a game is to score points by getting stones closer to the house center, or the button, than the other team's stones. Players from either team alternate in taking shots from the far side of the sheet, uh, 
An end is complete when all eight rocks from each team have been delivered, a total of 16 stones. If the teams are tied at the end of regulation, often extra ends are played to break the tie. The winner is the team with the highest score after all ends have been completed. A game may be conceded if winning the game is infeasible. International competitive games are generally 10 ends, so most of the national championships that send a representative to the World Championships or Olympics also play 10 ends. However, there is a movement on the World Curling Tour to make games only 8 ends. Most tournaments that tour are 8 ends and are the vast majority of recreational games. That's also the case for the mixed doubles that kicked off the Olympics in 2022. In international competition, each side is given 73 minutes to complete all of its throws. Each team is also allowed two minute long timeouts per 10 end game. If extra ends are required, each team is allowed 10 minutes of playing time to complete its throws and one added 60 second timeout for each extra end. The next section is called delivery. The process of sliding a stone down the sheet is known as the delivery or throw. Players, with the exception of the skip, take turns throwing and sweeping when one player throws. Players, with the exception of the skip, take turns throwing and sweeping. When one player throws, the players not delivering sweep. When the skip throws, the vice skip takes their role. The skip, or the captain of the team, determines the desired stone placement and the required weight, turn, and line that will allow the stone to stop there. And we'll get into the details momentarily on that. The placement will be influenced by the tactics at this point in the game, which may involve taking out, blocking, or tapping another stone. Now here we have three bullet points describing each of those three things. The weight of the stone is its velocity, which depends on the leg drive of the delivery rather than the arm. In other words, it's the throwers pushing off from the hack that affects the weight. The turn or curl is the rotation of the stone which gives it a curved trajectory. Now that's relatively straightforward and you'll hear announcers talking about the curl on a throw. The line is the direction of the throw ignoring the effect of the turn. So the line is Again, the direction of the throw ignoring the effect of the turn or the curl. It's not always obvious, but if you watch closely in a curling match, you'll see that they don't always throw the stone in a straight line. Sometimes it's off to the side a little bit. Sometimes it's left or right of center. 
And that's what they mean by talking about the direction of the throw and not how it's moving. The skip may communicate the weight, turn, line, and other tactics by calling or tapping a room on the ice. In the case of a takeout, guard, or a tap, the skip will indicate the stones involved. So when you're watching a regular match, the skip is often the person who's down at the end of the scoring end of the sheet, who's giving the instructions, who's closest to the stones and kind of knows what's going on there. In modern curling and in Olympic curling, of course, the house is displayed on a giant television in the arena, so even somebody who's going to throw can get a top-down view and an idea of what the scoring situation looks like. But traditionally, it's on the skip to be able to tell. Before delivery, the running surface of the stone is wiped clean and the path across the ice swept with the broom if necessary, since any dirt on the bottom of a stone or in its path can alter the trajectory and ruin the shot. Intrusion by a foreign object is called pickup or pick. The thrower starts from the hack. The thrower's gripper shoe, with the non-slippery sole, is positioned against one of the hacks. For a right-handed curler, the right foot is placed against the left hack, and vice versa for a left-hander. The thrower, now in the hack, lines the body up with shoulders square to the skip's broom at the far end for line. The stone is placed in front of the foot now in the hack. Rising slightly from the hack, the thrower pulls the stone back. Some older curlers may actually raise the stone in this backward movement. Then lunges smoothly out from the hack, pushing the stone ahead while the slider foot is moved in front of the gripper foot which trails behind. The thrust from this lunge determines the weight, and hence the distance the stone will travel. Balance may be assisted by broom held in the free hand with the back of the broom down so that it slides. One older writer suggests the player keep, quote, a basilisk glance at the mark. There are two common types of delivery currently the typical flat foot delivery, and the Manitoba tuck delivery, where the curler slides on the front ball of his foot. When the player releases the stone, a rotation is imparted by a slight clockwise or counterclockwise twist of the handle from around the 2 or 10 o'clock position to the 12 o'clock on release. A typical rate of turn is about two and a half rotations before coming to a rest. The stone must be released before its front edge crosses the near hog line, and it must clear the far hog line or else be removed from play, or hogged. An exception is made if a stone fails to come to rest beyond the far hog line after rebounding from a stone in play just past the hog line. In other words, if a stone bounces back across the line, it's still in play. In major tournaments, the eye of the hog sensor is commonly used to enforce this rule.
The sensor is in the handle of the stone and will indicate whether the stone was released before the near hog line. The lights on the stone handle will either light up green, indicating that the stone has been thrown legally, or red, in which case the illegally thrown stone will be immediately pulled from play instead of waiting for the stone to come to rest. Now we get into sweeping, the probably more popular, if not more recognizable part of the sport that everybody likes to make fun of or laugh at. After all, it is funny. People sweeping vigorously in front of a very big rock using very small brooms. After the stone is delivered, its trajectory is influenced by the two sweepers under instruction from the skip. Sweeping is done for several reasons. To make the stone travel farther, to decrease the amount of curl, and to clean debris from the stone's path. Sweeping is able to make the stone travel farther and straighter by slightly melting the ice under the brooms, thus decreasing the friction as the stone travels across that part of the ice. The stones curl more as they slow down, so sweeping early in travel tends to increase distance as well as straighten the path, and sweeping after sideways motion is established can increase the sideways distance. One of the basic technical aspects of curling is knowing when to sweep. When the ice in front of the stone is swept, a stone will usually travel both farther and straighter, and in some situations, one of those is not desirable. For example, a stone may be traveling too fast, said to have too much weight, but require sweeping to prevent curling into another stone. The team must decide which is better, getting by the other stone but traveling too far, or hitting the stone. Much of the yelling, and that is, by the way, another, I would say, tenant of curling, in fact, in part the excitement of curling, is the, is the yelling portion, which becomes the kind of almost most emotionally violent part of the game. And what's interesting when watching something of an international tournament like the Olympics is you get to hear everybody yelling in different languages and with different cadences and different styles. One of my favorites so far in the Olympics was the woman on the Chinese team had a sustained yell when it was time to sweep. There was just this one long sustained yell as the sweeper was traveling down the ice. Going back. Much of the yelling that goes on during a curling game is the skip and sweepers exchanging information about the stone's line and weight and deciding whether to sweep. The skip evaluates the path of the stone and calls for the sweepers to sweep 
as necessary to maintain the intended track. The sweepers themselves are responsible for judging the weight of the stone, ensuring that the length of travel is correct, and communicating the weight of the stone back to the skip. Many teams use a number system to communicate in which of ten zones the sweepers estimate the stone will stop. Some sweepers use stopwatches to time the stone from the back line, or T line, to the nearest hog line to aid in estimating how far the stone will travel. Usually, the two sweepers will be on opposite sides of the stone path, although depending on which side the sweeper's strengths lie, this may not always be the case. Speed and pressure are vital to sweeping. In gripping the broom, one hand should be one-third of the way from the top, non-brush end, of the handle, while the other hand should be one-third of the way from the head of the broom. The angle of the broom to the ice should be such that the most force possible can be exerted on the ice. The precise amount of pressure may vary from relatively light brushing, just cleaning to ensure debris will not alter the stone's path, to maximum pressure scrubbing. Sweeping is allowed anywhere on the ice up to the T-line. Once the leading edge of a stone crosses the T-line, only one player may sweep it. Additionally, if a stone is behind the T-line, one player from the opposing team is allowed to sweep it. This is the only case that a stone may be swept by an opposing team member. In international rules, this player must be the skip. But if the skip is throwing, then the sweeping player must be the third. So yeah, sometimes you'll see that the opposing team is sweeping, and that's usually because the throwing team has overthrown the stone, or has thrown it with too much weight, and they are brushing it to get it to move further away from the button in the house. That can sometimes be a very exciting moment in a match. Now I'll gloss over a few things that are coming up here. One is about burning a stone, which is basically where there's an error and a stone needs to be removed from play. And then there's a very lengthy section about the free guard zone on the sheet. And the free guard zone is pretty deep in the weeds rules that you don't really need to enjoy watching the sport on TV. The short version of it is, is that it's to curb a certain strategy that uh, they would prefer not to have in the game. So instead of talking about those things, we're going to go over the three types of shots. Many different types of shots are used to carefully place stones for strategic or tactical reasons. They fall into three fundamental categories as follows, and these you're going to hear a lot during Olympic commentary. So this is 
this is really useful information here for as much as I've been droning on about this and that. Guards are thrown in front of the house in the free guard zone, usually to protect a stone or to make the opposing team's shot difficult. Guard shots include the center guard, or the center line, and the corner guards to the left or right sides of the center line. The simple way of explaining that is stones that are in the way. Next is a draw. Draws are thrown only to reach the house. Draw shots include raise, come around, and freeze shots. Draws are thrown to reach the house. Draw shots include raise, come around, and freeze shots. And I'm just going to very quickly read what come around and freeze are. So come around is any shot that curls around another rock. So basically what it sounds like. And then a freeze is a precise draw weight shot where a delivered stone comes to rest against a stationary stone, making it nearly impossible to take out. So when you hear an announcer saying that they plan on going for the freeze, what they're trying to do is get that stone to just rest against their opposing team's rock. And then the uh, third one in this draw category is the raise, which is a shot in which the delivered stone bumps another stone forward. And there are a ton of terms in the glossary of curling terms, uh, and we're not going to go through that here. So the last type of shot is a takeout. Takeouts are intended to remove stones from play and include the peel, which you'll hear a lot during the Olympics, hit and roll, and double shots. So I'll read the peel. Peel is a takeout that removes a stone from play as well as the delivered stone. They are usually intentional, such as for blanking an end. So you'll see this a lot. It's basically where one team sacrifices a stone to take out another stone and then both are gone. And those are the, at least according to the fine people at Wikipedia, the main types of shots that folks like us need to know to understand curling. And I think that's good enough, to be honest. I wasn't sure myself what all of these meant going into this section, so this is very helpful. The last part of gameplay that I think is crucial for us to bring up, because there is a very extensional section here on strategy, and we're gonna we're gonna skip that. I think that. You can learn quite a lot about the strategy of the game 
just by watching it during the Olympics and think about what you think you might do if you were in that situation. And this last thing within gameplay that is super important is of course the hammer. The last rock in an end is called the hammer and throwing the hammer gives a team a tactical advantage. Before the game, teams typically decide who gets the hammer in the first end, either by chance, such as a coin toss, by a draw-to-the-button contest, where a representative of each team shoots to see who gets closer to the center of the rings, or particularly in tournament settings, like the Winter Olympics, by a comparison of each team's win-loss record. In all subsequent ends, the team that did not score in the preceding end gets to throw second, thus having the hammer. In the event that neither team scores, called a blanked end, the hammer remains with the same team. So that's relatively simple. Sometimes you'll see a team that's in the lead, um, like in the gold medal match for the mixed doubles, you'll see a team that's in the lead that is far enough in the lead that they might throw away a stone or let the opposing team score one or two points so that they can keep the hammer for the next round, especially if the next round is the final end. As an example, if your team was up, say, 10 to 6, then you might let the other team score one point just so that you can keep the hammer in the final round. Moving on. Naturally, it is easier to score points with the hammer than without. The team with the hammer generally tries to score two or more points. If only one point is possible, the skip may try to avoid scoring at all in order to retain the hammer the next end, giving the team another chance to use the hammer advantage to try to score two points. Scoring without the hammer is commonly referred to as stealing, or a steal, and is much more difficult. Now, there you go. The detail about the hammer is definitely one of the most important things you can know about curling because it will come up in every end and the announcers will be talking about it constantly. And that's most of the gist of how the game works. Um, often games are conceded, there's a section about that here, when it is determined that another team cannot win or is unlikely to win. Um, and there are also rules for dispute resolution that we don't need to go into here. But every once in a while during the Olympic Games, you'll see them take out a measuring rod that fits into the buttonhole in the middle of the house so that they can see which stone is closest to the center. However, more often than not, you'll see the two teams have a look at it. Uh, the two skips from either team will look at it and they'll make a 
an agreement on which stone is closest, and that's most of the time. There's a section here on scoring, and I read over this earlier, and it is kind of interesting. I'll just say this much, that the scoreboard you see during the Winter Olympics is the baseball style of scoreboard that shows the number of points in an end, each end, and then traditionally a club scoreboard uh, is done differently where the total number of points scored is listed per end, and that basically means that you can use fewer number cards if you have like a scoreboard or you don't have to write as much. It's not super important to enjoying the game on TV. There's a, uh, if you choose to go check out the Wikipedia article, and uh, I'll have a link in the description, there is also a bunch about curling culture, and there's a section on uh, accessibility in curling, and curling in pop culture. But the last one that I wanted to read which I think is one of the most important things as well, and something that you don't hear a lot about or necessarily notice when you're watching the Olympics, but something that is definitely imparted to you if you go to take curling lessons. And it's something that I think is actually one of the most important things about the sport. And after taking lessons, one of the things that made me really appreciate it and that is good sportsmanship. If you go to take curling lessons, they will tell you that it's always about everybody having a good time and being cool with one another. It's not the kind of sport that's like anger and violence and holding those things up on a pedestal. So if that sounds like your kind of sport, and you've connected with some of the other things I've read about, then I highly recommend learning more about curling on TV or taking lessons in person. And here I'll read some of what they have on the subject in Wikipedia. More so than in many other team sports, Good sportsmanship, often referred to as the spirit of curling, is an integral part of curling. The spirit of curling also leads teams to congratulate their opponents for making a good shot, strong sweeping, or spectacular form. Perhaps most importantly, the spirit of curling dictates that one never cheers mistakes, misses, or gaffes by one's opponent, unlike most team sports. And one should not celebrate one's own good shots during the game beyond modest acknowledgement of the shot such as a head nod, fist bump, or thumbs up gesture. Modest congratulation, however, may be exchanged between winning team members after the match. 
on the ice celebration is usually reserved for the winners of a major tournament after winning the final game of the championship. It is completely unacceptable to attempt to throw opposing players off their game by way of negative comment, distraction, or heckling. A match traditionally begins with players shaking hands with and saying good curling or have a pleasant game to each member of the opposing team. It is also traditional in some areas for the winning team to buy the losing team a drink after the game. Now that's something that I think many of us can appreciate as a tradition of a game. So even if you lost your match, you still get a beer out of it. Even at the highest levels of play, players are expected to call their own fouls. It is not uncommon for a team to concede a curling match after it believes it no longer has any hope of winning. Concession is an honorable act and does not carry the stigma associated with quitting. It also allows for more socializing. To concede a match, members of the losing team offer congratulatory handshakes to the winning team. Thanks, wishes of future good luck, and hugs are usually exchanged between the teams. To continue playing when a team has no realistic chance of winning can be seen as a breach of etiquette. So there you have it, the spirit of curling, good sportsmanship, and getting a beer after the game. Well, I feel like I have learned that a very particular ponder does not always give way to serious rambling, but I hope that you have appreciated in your own way the information that you have received. If there is another specific, particular topic you would like to ponder with me, let me know. I think we'll leave it here for this bonus episode of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, in which we did a deep dive into the world of Olympic curling I hope you have been adequately rambled to rest and are not hearing what I'm saying right now. However, if for some reason you are conscious at this time, I will leave you with these parting words. Rings. Island. Cool. Deadpan. Worry. Handsomely. Sock. Anger. Past. And impartial. Thank you again for this bonus journey. I am your host, Ryan and I'll see you next time.